gospel lesson. It's from the good news according to St. John, the 11th chapter. As like last week, it is a long story. I think they picked it for Lent, so you have to stand longer and suffer. Uh, but it's one of the most beautiful stories in the whole New Testament. And so I hope you can give it your careful attention this time in this uh, careful reading of it. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And he answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated back in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the gospel of our Lord. At some point in your life, have nearly all of you been, found yourself in a life and death situation where you're actually worried about whether you were going to make it? I actually found myself, I'm not going to tell the long story, the long version of this, although I want to. Uh, just a few weeks ago when I was leading a retreat in Central America uh, on the day of research before guests showed up, my wife and I found ourselves in a situation. I wondered if we were going to make it out. Suffice to say, we've been lost in the jungle for four or five hours with no cell service and no water, uh, and buzzards were circling, and I sat down under a tree thinking that maybe it was over as the sun began to, like, lower in the sky. Have you ever found yourself in a life and death situation? The fact is, you're in one right now. 37 minutes ago, 38 minutes ago, we started this worship service, and you're now 38 minutes closer to your own death. The lovely and Pulitzer-winning news organization called The Onion ran an article some years ago titled this, The World Death Rate is Holding Steady at 100%. And went like this. WHO officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. It's responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, and the condition has no cure. Death is what we fear most. It's our greatest enemy. And at some point, each of us is going to be Mary and Martha in this story, weeping at the grave of someone we love. Already many of you have buried loved ones. You know the sting of death never goes away. And at some point later than sooner, I hope for every one of us, we're going to be in that grave. It's this terrible fact that resides at the periphery of our lives, out of view much of the time, but it never goes away, that specter. It haunts us even when we try to make light of it. Forty years ago, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker claimed that fear of our own mortality 
was the fundamental motivator behind all human behavior. He wrote a Pulitzer, a truly Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And he said that our awareness of our own mortality makes each of us want to engage in activities that set us apart. We strive for immortality by leaving our unique mark on the world through our kids and careers and art and architecture, philosophies and politics, finances, friendships, even fashion. But at the end of the day, we know the futility of our efforts. We don't know who built the pyramids. I can't tell you the names of my great, great grandparents. Death awaits us all, and we are terrified of this. Mary and Martha had been terrified of it as their brother was sick, sick unto death. And they called to Jesus for help to come and bring some of that special healing power that he had. And they're now grieving his death and still confused and wondering if anything could be done, but knowing that it can't because who's ever seen anyone be raised from the dead? But I want you to see this morning that we're going to be reflecting on the God who is love. And we're going to reflect what does it mean to be a people who believe in and follow and want to live life like this God of love. And the first thing I want you to see is that love lingers with death. Notice first that these women lingered. I mean, frankly, this is something from their culture and from most undeveloped, less developed countries in the world today. That people know how to sit and linger and consider death. They sat there and stuck with their dying and eventually dead brother. They acknowledged their need, their powerlessness, the awful fact of the end of life. They called out for help, admitting they didn't know the future or even how to fix the situation. But as Ernest Becker said, see, this fear that we all have about death and the fact that we know it's coming for us. I remember one of the first spiritual awakenings of my life was as a young kid reading Ozymandias, this poem about a great, uh, you know the poem? This great, magnificent uh, monument in the desert, and it's broken down. There's nothing around but sand for miles and miles, and it says at the end of the poem, basically this inscription at the bottom of the, of the uh, monument, it says, I am the great and almighty Ozymandias. Look upon my kingdom and my works, all ye mighty in despair. And I thought, ooh, nothing I build in my life, no matter how powerful, is going to last. But that fear can motivate a lot of activity, a lot of daily, productive, New York City, dynamo kind of activity to make a name for ourselves, to be in control, to disguise our fear of death. But love would have us linger to memento mori, to remember that we are going to die and that death is still, even right now, all around us. Love would have us not just go about our routine and ignore it, but actually get beneath the surface to look at the roots, beneath our activity, our hustle, our reactivity, our defenses, and to look beneath our fear. When we feel loss, or sickness, or a ruined economy, or war, or environmental decay, all of these things that are smaller forms of death and dying. When we face these things, to linger with them, not to just try to shove them aside or numb them, 
but to ask what we are truly afraid of and to see if beneath these things on the surface there's not there at the root this fear of death, this final dark pit that threatens to erase all we are and all we do, this pit that all of us will go down into someday. And this is what Lent, the season of Lent, is about. It starts with, you came from the dust and you will return to dust. You will leave this world the same way that you came into it, naked, vulnerable, and entirely alone. Lent and all these seasons of memento mori are opportunities to get to the roots beneath our fear and our activity on the surface and to sit with it, to sit shiva, if you will, with our fear of death. Otherwise, we'll never be healed. Be half alive and half dead. Half healed, half sick. Half heaven, half hell. But see, that's not what we were made for. We weren't made for half life. We weren't made to just listen to this cruel rumor of God's shalom, but have no lived experience of it. We were made for abundant life, not for death. For abundant love, not for hate. The first humans in the Bible were safest and most alive when they were dependent on God for his power in their own weakness, childishness, nakedness, lack of knowledge, vulnerability, and need. When they decided to do their own thing, to take back control, to cover their fear, to not be vulnerable, to do their own thing, they experienced fear, and that fear led to death, and then they had even more to fear. Jesus says, don't rush past this. Come back to the source. Death is in the world because the sting of death is in sin and turning away from me. And the good news is that when we linger with our greatest fear, we find that there is someone else there with us lingering before death. In this passage, it's Jesus himself. God himself lingers with you at the doorway to death. Here's some of these verses again. They came to Jesus and they said, Lord, Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. Two verses later, it reminds us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Interesting. We'll revisit this a bit in a minute. But why did the Lord, if he loved them, linger away from the death and dying when he could have intervened? Why does he linger now when there are big or little deaths and dyings in your life? If he's God and he's good and he's able and he knows all, why? And I will confess to you that this Christian, this preacher here, it's absolutely a mystery. We don't have a direct answer What we do have in this story and throughout the good news of Christianity is a reframing. A reframing of this question of, well, why death and dying in the world? And when, if God is good and powerful and he loves us? What we have here is a picture of God's perspective, his posture toward death. And toward those who grieve and fear death. But notice for now, what's not true, it's not Because he doesn't love us, that he lingers and allows death to happen. They said to them, those whom you love are ill. And the scriptures tell us he loved them. And yet he lingered. All of you fearing 
sickness, and possible death of someone you love or of yourself, along with Mary and Martha, hear this right now, now, in this moment, Jesus loves you. His love is as true as the fact of death. Love lingers, as we're going to see, so that we might not rush past the greatest enemy to us experiencing life and love, death itself, but that we might linger and get to the root of the problem and be healed. And so the next move is love lingers and then love mourns. Jesus waited, we'll see why, and then he goes to them finally, Lazarus is good and dead, if you will, and Jesus begins the process of mourning with his people and his beloved. And this is the posture and the perspective I want you to see in the God of the scriptures. The God of Christianity is the one whose eyes are filled with love, and this love fills his eyes when looking upon death and dying with tears. Look at the eyes and the actions of God's son, Jesus, the Christ. God's love provokes his own hatred at all that hurts his creation and his beloved bride. He weeps for his friend, for his friend's suffering, even though he let them go through it. Here again, this verse, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. That first word, the Greek word that is translated deeply moved, is the Greek word embrimamai. It doesn't just mean deeply moved. It falls a little short by not translating this fully literally, which is that embrimamai means for someone to be righteously pissed off, <laughs> to be outraged. The root word is often used of the snorting of horses, nostrils flared, furious, indignant, to snort in anger is the definition, like a bull getting ready to attack. He sees this death and he sees the grief it has brought and the mourning to the people and to their fear and to their sadness, and he is angry at it. He snorts with anger at it. And the next verse says he's greatly troubled. This, this is used often of a picture of a pool of water that was calm and still, but something roils it up and troubles it and agitates it. He begins to get agitated in his spirit. He's greatly troubled. There's ripples going through him. And then in verse 35, famously the shortest verse in the Bible, and yet the one that contains the cosmos, Jesus wept. He gets angry. He gets upset and troubled and turned upside down. And finally, he is weeping. Jesus' response to death and grief is his own grief to join in it, to cry at the death of his friend, at the grieving of Mary and Martha and the family and friends. And he weeps. And his weeping and his grief makes him go to Lazarus. And I want you to hear this morning that love mourns. Love lingers so that love can go to the roots and love can mourn with us and for us and at us sometimes. Jesus wept and he still weeps. He weeps even now at the actual death that's happening to people throughout the world, sometimes and often through no fault of their own. 
He weeps at many of the ways we're already half dead, that we make his beautiful creation and this gift of life like a walking hell rather than like a heaven. He weeps. He weeps when any of the results of fear and sin and death sicken us as a society, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, materially. He weeps with you when you hear insults due to your race or ethnicity or sex. He weeps with you over hungry children and the parentless and the sex trafficked. He weeps if you're elderly and you feel like others see you as expendable. He weeps if you've lost or are losing someone to any illness or disease. He weeps over the dead. He weeps when you weep at the world. So if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with faith or considering faith or exploring faith for the first time or again after a season of wandering, I need you to hear that one of the central aspects of who Jesus is is seen here. He is one who weeps with those who weep. He is anguished at death just as you are. If you've never prayed, then I can tell you that the one you pray to is not far off. He's not an impersonal God who is far removed from the suffering of your life. Instead, the Lord Jesus is the one the prophet Isaiah described as a man of sorrows, much acquainted with grief. As we heard earlier this morning, he is one who's put his griefs on our shoulders. He's carried our sorrows. He was crushed to the bones for our sickness. He received the painful surgery that brings us healing and shalom. By his wounds, we are healed. If you ever wonder whether God cares, look upon Jesus. See him lingering at all the forms of death in the world and in your life and see him weeping. See him mourning with you. And see him with his arms spread out on a rudely made cross of wooden beams opening an embrace of us, yes, but of death. Of death and of all of its energy and all of those dying under it and all the wrath in the world, asking the Father to forgive us for going about our business not even knowing what we're doing, he says. See, the Lord mourns death even more deeply than we ever have or ever will. He mourns it all the way to the end of his own life. He went naked and alone into it to get beneath the surface, to get under the roots all the way, to be with us, to heal us. And if you are a Christian, this is an invitation to remember again this truth. In the days and years to come, you will read tragedies in the world, especially if you read the news, because that's all they like to traffic in, because it makes the most money. As you experience death and dying yourself, as you feel fear and you fear death, Remember an experience that you have above you and beside you and within you a God who grieves with you. And know this, that when love lingers so that love can mourn fully, love then gives life. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had, came out, who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Death is our greatest enemy. But Jesus has come to conquer 
death. He doesn't ignore death or distract from it or try to build a monument to outlast it or hand down generational wealth to his grandchildren or any of these sorts of things. He walks up to death, to the tomb, and he faces it. And right there, by the power of his word, he creates new life. A real type of resurrection. It wasn't just a a, a resuscitation as if someone had been down CPR for a few minutes and they brought him back. But it wasn't a resurrection like Jesus's either because, of course, Lazarus would go on to die again someday. This is a, a mini resurrection, a picture of the Jesus who was the first to actually resurrect and to come from the future into the world, never to die again. But Jesus gives real new life. He reviv- revivifies and raises from the dead Lazarus. See, his lingering, his mourning wasn't merely sympathy. It wasn't merely commiseration with us. It was the grieving process that was meant to culminate in deep action. Resurrection. The reason to go to the bottom, the reason to linger, the reason to mourn is in order to receive new life. Not just to mope but to receive new life. New life that is out of our ability to create or maintain or to give. New life that comes from God alone and transforms. New life that is greater and longer lasting than death. See, they called him a great teacher. They've even called him the Christ at this point. They knew Jesus at this point only as a teacher, a guru, a healer, a shaman, a potential human king, an anointed one who could work miracles, someone with power over disease. But he lingered. Love lingered. He mourned. Love mourned. And then he gave new life. Love gave new life. And now, now they know him as the resurrection and the life. He lingered, he said, so that they could see the mighty works of God through him and in seeing believe that in Jesus is resurrection. In Jesus is new and everlasting and abundant life. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall still live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I ask you, do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the same one who lingers, the same one who mourns, the same one who is angry, the same one who wants to fix it, the same one who walks up to death is the one who has the power for resurrection. And the promise of resurrection and new life. If you want love, real love that lasts, if you want life, you have to linger, you have to mourn, and then you have to meet the one who is life. Death is but once, but life and love are forever. In the words of my favorite author, Dostoevsky, he wrote this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. I believe that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, 
that it will make not only possible to forgive, but somehow to justify all that has happened. Can you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? To believe that even now he's brought life in the midst of death, that it's possible to live physically, but not to live spiritually. And he's come to bring both to life, to bring us to life spiritually, to see him, to believe him, to have this hope within us, this promise, and to be assured that we don't have to fear death anymore because it has no sting, it has no finality. It's simply a speed bump we're going to move through to the other side where all of these beautiful promises await us. Will believing this change you? To believe that the end of the Christian story is life? That we don't even believe in life after death. Instead, we believe in life after life after death. That we'll have Jesus fully and his love fully. And he's brought the end of the world into the middle now. That resurrection life is even here now. They had Lazarus back at the table for some years and enjoyed his laugh and the look in his eyes. And his moments of pensive rumination and holding his hand and doing things with him and celebrating the festivals that even now resurrection life has broken into this world and is springing up like the crocuses and magnolia blooms and daffodils right here in the middle of old dead winter that spring is already beginning, that it's happening. This world is warming up to his love. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm convinced that we need this that we need this individually, we need this as a church, we need this as a community, as people in Brooklyn and New York City, that we need to be people of love, who linger with death, who mourn at it, but also that love life, that we linger and mourn because we love life more, that we believe people are made for life and for resurrection, and that his life and his love are what can transform all things and to give us hope in the midst of death. Can we believe with Mary, Lord, you are the resurrection and the life. If so, let me paint a picture as a closing application of what this would look like. If you believed that God is the love who brings life, then all of your sacrifice and self-denial and serving would be coherent rather than something you do begrudgingly. Your work life wouldn't end in a whimper when you get old and can't do it anymore. Instead, they would all be signs of a future ending that's to come that you participated in bringing these signs into the here and to the now of the strongest force in the world. Imagine if we weren't alone and competitors trying not to die, but instead we saw one another as co-conspirators, as co-laborers and bringing new life. To believe that we have a mission here in New York City bigger than a paycheck that we could save so we could give to the poor, that we could be delight in touching those who others consider untouchables, that we could open our homes to strangers, we could make works of beauty and hope even though our world makes us feel cynical and hopeless. See, Christians are to be resurrection people, life people, the first fruits of a harvest. We work life after life after death into all that we do now because that is what Jesus is doing, and this is good news. It means no labor is in vain. Your work matters. Every atom, every inch, every space in your heart and mind, each one of you uniquely matter because Jesus died and rose to give each of us life. That every act done in love is an act of faith and an act of life. 
It means that you believe in giving life to other people. And to believe that in giving life to other people, you are giving them a taste of eternal love, that love of God, that not even death can put an end to. And so I close with this other poem from Wendell Berry, a manifesto. If this is true, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor, love someone who doesn't deserve it, expect the end of the world, and laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. May the Lord give us his life this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.